This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, both the federal and provincial governments announced new supports for businesses hard hit by the latest round of COVID restrictions. Ottawa is temporarily expanding eligibility for wage and rent subsidy programs, as well as income support of 300 bucks a week for certain employees who have lost work. Here in Ontario, there's a new business rebate program for property tax and energy costs and a six-month interest and penalty-free period to make payments for most provincially administered taxes. But is it enough? Some businesses have closed at least temporarily during what should have been their busiest time because they'd be losing money in the current circumstance. Uh, what do you make of all this? Are you affected by this? If you're a worker who's lost hours or anything like that, are, is this support of 300 a week good enough? And uh, if you've got a business hard hit, how are you managing? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. 40. And now I would like to welcome Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Lindsay Broadhead, the Senior Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs at the Toronto Region Board of Trade. And do we have Eric Joyal? Okay, we are waiting another guest as well. Let's begin with Rocco. So what do you, what's your reaction to these supports? Uh, thanks for shining a light on this, as always, uh, Libby. Um, clearly, um, any help is, is, uh, is welcome. Um, but what is most welcome is cash, um, because deferrals while useful in the early days of the pandemic where we all hoped uh, and thought it would be short-lived is helpful, but this far into it um, and all of the debt that's been accumulated, it's not particularly helpful because those deferrals for a hard-hit restaurant, a hall, um, they're not going to get their Christmas parties back in March to make the payments. They're not going to have their New Year's Eve parties in April. And so as the old saying goes, cash is king and they need it today, not after an application process in middle of, uh, of January and then a rebate that you're only getting, obviously, after you've already paid your bills. Hmm. Lindsay Broadhead, how do you see it? Hi, Libby. Hi. Um, hi, Rocco, too. Um, yeah, we at the Toronto board, we, we have a similar point of view uh, as Rocco. Um, measures like this, of course, are always welcome. Um, you know, they're giving many businesses a, a short-term boost 
uh, that that many need, some additional short-term protections to allow uh, some to stay open. But um, it, as far as where what businesses are actually asking for and where we should be going, frankly, we should have <laughs> started much of this already. Um, it's it's not really answering what what businesses actually need. Um, these are these are short term uh, solutions. I I'll go so far as even calling them band aid uh, to a certain degree. Uh, we need longer term, clear, consistent plans in place. Hmm. Um- what about this uh, seems to be a phenomenon of businesses that are not, they're not, uh, you know, going under, but they're just closing up now. They're just saying, you know what, at this point, I've had it. Rocco, uh, are a lot of your members doing that? And what's your reaction? Well, uh, some some are and some have. But to Lindsay's point, and she's bang on, um the problem started well before the recent announcement of the 50% restriction and the hour hours restrictions. Um, and all levels of government have basically, like the rest of us, wanted to have COVID in the rearview mirror. Um, but it's not done with us yet. And even before the restrictions were put in place, if you've got a restaurant, a dry cleaner, a retailer in downtown uh, Toronto, in effect, you already had a greater than 50% restriction because the foot traffic, as our friends at the Toronto Region Board of Trade um, have analyzed, is well below 50%, has been for some time uh, after all of these supports were ended or cut back, which has only added to the burden on these businesses. If you own your building, uh, if you had cash reserves on hand, then maybe you can um, you you can get through this, but for so many businesses, they're shutting down because, quite frankly, they're saying, "Look, Rocco, the government says I'm allowed to be open, uh, and that's why they've cut back on the uh, on the supports." This is prior to these announcements. They've cut back on the supports, but for me to go out and get labor and to restock my inventory. For 20, 30% of my regular foot traffic, you're just asking me to go bankrupt faster. I'm actually burning less cash being shut down. And that's, in effect, what a number of people are trying, hoping to conserve what little cash they may have uh, in, in the hopes that, that we are uh, close to the other shore. Hmm. Um you know, I, uh, in the weeks leading up to Omicron, uh, I was out at a number of restaurants and they were full. It wasn't 20 or 30 percent. They were full. And, you know, they looked like they were headed back on track. Lindsay. They were full because so many others uh, have been shut down. Yeah, well, and right, to add to you, that, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. If you look at the big office towers, for instance, in downtown, um, because the major employers are still to be on the safe side, and 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 you know we we totally support the the need for um, uh, public health uh, measures and important to keep uh, people as healthy as possible. But the the major employers 
that do have the option of having uh, workers work from home are continuing um, to have that. And so there simply isn't the volume downtown that there is in regular times. And so they're not supporting. You walk through the path and, and you, could, you could fire a cannon off uh, at, at many times during the, the day. Um, and those businesses are literally um, drowning. That's that's got to be uh, just about the hardest hit uh, place. And Lindsay, I know that when you go to work um, in the office, uh, that's where your office is. Uh, but I'm assuming that, um, yeah, that that is just about the hardest hit place. I think that possibly restaurants in neighborhoods were doing a little better. Well, and, and I think we have to kind of pause. We're covering a lot of interesting uh, territory here, even by speaking about these very specific places, right? What we need to do is acknowledge some of the learnings that we've made over the last nearly, you know, it feels like decades of life, but the 21 months or so, not all businesses are the same, right? And these are obvious statements, but they're, they complicate the plan that we require, right? Not all businesses and sectors are the same. Not all geographic areas, certainly Rocco will notice as he represents the entire province, but even within the Toronto region, not all um, geographical areas, what we've been calling business districts, have been hit the same. Some are full of essential workers. Some have, like the area of downtown, the downtown core that you mentioned, um, many of the workers have been working from home. Um, so, uh, as Rocco said, all of that foot traffic uh, has has been robbed from the, the 2,500 smaller businesses or so, right? What we keep doing is pretending that COVID will be cured. And we need to start planning from an economic point of view that this pandemic needs to be controlled. And that's why we're putting band-aids and immediate measures on what is, you know, I don't know if this would be considered a crisis like the, the March 20th period, but it's certainly a high issue, close to crisis. So we need to address that immediately. But if we want to move on so that we don't keep replicating the same painful cycle we're in, we need to acknowledge that we're going to be living in an endemic period of time, right? A period of time when we will be living with COVID and we can live with it quite safely, There'll be, they'll, but we need the right measures in place. Um, some restaurants, to go back to what you were saying, of course they were thriving because they were in areas where populations um, uh, were, were going out. And as Rocco said, there were, there were fewer uh, options, perhaps. Restaurants are closing down now because of Workers who are unvaccinated, if you follow restaurants at all across the province, there are, you know, single cases are shutting down restaurants. The cost incurred for all the supply chain problems are um, driving, there, there's more risk than reward economically. Um, these are now becoming systemic, um, and, and that's what we need to address. Okay, let's take a call from Sundra in Toronto. Hi, Sundra. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? You're a small oh, business owner. Yes, oh, I work in a small business. My question was related to the kits that they were handing out. Uh-huh. Uh, how are, how is your business doing? Uh, not too good. People are not showing up for work. 
And uh, my question was, these kits that are being handed out, why doesn't the common use can the post to deliver one kit per per household? And That's get- a good question, Sandra. Thanks for your call. Um, we are talking about the supports for small business or for businesses, small and maybe not so small, announced yesterday by the government, and uh, whether they're enough to keep people in business beyond this holiday period, this holiday period when a lot of them were uh, supposed to be having their busiest time of the year. And we know that the busiest time of the year is generally followed by the quietest time of the year, which is the beginning of the new year. Uh, Rocco, uh, there are still a lot of loans that businesses have that are going to be coming due. What would you like to see happen to those? Well, there are uh, different uh, types. One, for instance, that uh, we need immediate action on um, is the the repayment schedule for the SIBA loans. Uh, These are the federal uh, loans to uh, small businesses that if they're paid back by the end of this year, not only is it interest-free, uh, but a significant portion then gets um, given to the business as a grant. Uh, and the assumption when it was devised as a program was that by this time of, of the year, people would be back in business and therefore in a position to repay them. Uh, that clearly is not the case for many businesses. And Lindsay's got it bang on. This is really a tale of two cities or two economies um, because some have done very, very well and others have suffered from the beginning and continue to suffer, that needs to, uh, that there needs to be a clear uh, message to people that that's going to be extended. You're still going to be able to get the, uh, the grant portion of that and we'll extend the terms. On, on the others, and I take a bunch of the taxes and fees that are owed to government essentially as loans, as debt on the balance sheet. I mean, yes, they're, they're payables at, at one level, but it's not like these hard-hit small businesses have put these taxes into a bank account in Panama. They've been using those dollars to keep the lights on, to survive. And, and in some respect, you know, and Lindsay uh, shied away from, from the, the Band-Aid term for it, in some respect, it's a, it's a convenient delay for the provincial government as well, because quite frankly, if they were to call all of those taxes right now and, and not give the six month, um, uh, you know, delay with no interest or penalty, you would find a number of those businesses would have to go bankrupt right now, uh, because they simply don't have the cash to pay it. So when they get called, Either um, uh, you will, again, do what you're doing now, which is kick the can down the road. B, government is going to have to decide, at least for some sectors of the economy, to simply eat some or all of those uh, of those uh, taxes and fees, which are, have effectively become loans, turn them into grants. Or three, that's when you're going to see a lot more businesses uh, go under, and again, in very specific areas, because let's not forget, you know, the TSX is racking up a 20% plus year-over-year year. 
If you've been in technology, in finance, in many of the essential services, from a financial standpoint, you've done extremely well. If you were in tourism, hospitality, live music and events, um, uh, personal services, you were hit in the gut from the beginning, and you are the last to come out. So these loans that that many of these businesses have built uh, have to be um, have to be addressed, or it will be a weight that's too great for them to survive. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, it seems that it is really, really difficult for a lot of people in a lot of sectors. And then on the other hand, you know, in the Auditor General's report, a lot of businesses got grants that they were not eligible for that the Ontario government is uh, forgiving. So how do you uh, square those kind of two sides of things? I'm assuming they want to avoid doing that this time around. Lindsay? Um, well, I, I mean, just uh, as a broad comment, it, it, based on the um, uh, the announcement uh, yesterday from the, the federal government, uh, there seems to be more uh, in-syncness uh, an alignment uh, between they and and the Ontario government, which is which is a good thing. Um, but uh, again, not to sound like a, a broken record, um, I I don't think we're adequately listening to what the uh, the small businesses in particular, many medium, but um, are are needing. Um, and even Sandra, your your caller earlier, I mean, I I would have like to have known uh, what sector he was in, but this idea of workers not showing up to work, we need to unpack that problem, right? Because it's illustrative of not just his business, but others. So why, right? Um, is it a, a fear for their own well-being? Is it, you know, the, the money isn't worth the risk? I'm not sure, right? But we need to I- identify that problem and then provide a solve for it that's meaningful, um, uh, equally, he pointed to the, the rapid tests that have been handed out. Rapid tests are going to be um, an absolutely essential tool to how not only we're dealing with this now, but how we come up out of this. The, um, the willy-nilly way in which um, they were released recently um, with, you know, queues of thousands of people um, around the province Think of the impact of that. Well, and you know what? Um, right? uh, so the for... psyche of the, of the province, is, it's detrimental. Um, and that type of ill-planned um, release of a critical tool is um, exactly um, at the heart of, of the problem here. And I, I don't think we can really shy away from it any any longer. Well, it, there's a shortage because even for business, I can tell you that our business uh, qualified for some, but it's backlogged. So um, we're out of time on this. Rocco, what would you like to leave us with? Well, this isn't just about what the government can do. All of us as consumers have huge power. Uh, now more than ever, to the extent that you're financially able, um, if you can, you know, buy a gift certificate, uh, order in uh, dinner, do that extra click and buy from a local uh, business, your Christmas purchase is someone's salary, is someone's mortgage payment, is someone's dream staying alive. And so, yes, 
The government's got to step up and do more. But all of us have it in our power to help these main businesses that are more than just selling goods and services, but are our main streets, are our city culture, are our, you know, our spirit in our towns and villages throughout this province. So stay positive, test negative, get your booster and buy local every chance you get. Okay, that's a good message to end on. Thank you very much, and Merry Christmas, Rocco Rossi and Lindsay Broadhead. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thanks, Lindsay. Uh, We we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're following up on something we heard yesterday. Uh, I heard it when I was talking to Kevin Smith, the CEO of UHN, and later uh, the Medical Officer of Health, and that is different rules for healthcare workers They're not going to have to isolate if they're a direct contact of somebody who um, tests positive. So uh, the unions have something to say about that, and we'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. With Omicron spreading like wildfire, the Ontario government announced new rules for hospital workers who have been in close contact with someone who is COVID positive. They don't have to stay home and isolate as long as they test negative daily for 10 days. It's intended to avoid severe staffing shortages, but healthcare unions Say it's dangerous. And what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Right now, let's go to Michael Hurley, who is the president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. Hi there, Michael. How are you? I'm good, Libby. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm I'm uh, perfectly fine. But what do you make of this rule? And by the way, in Quebec, it's even worse. They're saying that even if workers test positive, they want them at work. Yes. Well, it's really alarming uh, to uh, you know healthcare workers, especially the ones working in hospitals. As you know, Public Health Ontario reported that as of September. 860 patients had died of COVID. They contracted in hospital. They went in for cancer or for a hip replacement, and they caught COVID, and they never they never came out again. So um, even triple vaccinated, these patients, you know, have to be very very sick to be in hospital, and they're and they're extremely vulnerable. And um, you know, these policies that are coming out in these hospitals, uh, driven by the provincial government's change of, of view here has people relying on uh, rapid tests, which can have false negatives of, you know, 50%, uh, you know, and and as a result, we're deeply concerned that there's going to be, uh, you know, a very significant element of risk introduced for patients in Ontario hospitals and also uh, for staff who everyone agrees are in very short supply. Um, What some of the uh, doctors that I've been talking to say is that, the rapid test is kind of good in the moment. And if you test negative, you know, before you walk through the hospital doors, chances are that even if it's incubating, it's not contagious yet. Uh, do you hold with that? 
Well, no, I mean, uh, uh, you know, a, a virologist at the University of Montreal was, you know, writing today that, um, you know, in high-risk settings like hospitals, you can't rely on the rapid antigen test because the rate of false uh, uh, negatives is, is is much too high, and the people that we're dealing with are are much too vulnerable. And even in protective equipment, I mean, even with the best mask, uh, you know, that, that's most commonly available, the N95, it's certified by NIOSH to screen 95-96% of virus particles, but they still escape, and they still escape into air that's shared by patients and by coworkers. So, no, we wouldn't agree that uh, that this that the, this is a safe uh, a safe way to proceed. And uh, you know, we'd really hope that the government will reconsider and the hospitals will reconsider. Uh- it's uh, certainly, I, I think that everyone would admit it's kind of uh, desperate measures for desperate times. What's your suggestion? Well, I mean, staffing levels are low. I mean, but one thing that this does is just reinforce for the healthcare workforce on the front line that nobody really cares about them, right, as people, you know, because they're willing to expose them to risk um, and they're willing to expose the people they care for. And that's that causes what's been defined as kind of a moral injury where people are forced to be complicit in practices that they believe are unhealthy for the people that they're supposed to be looking after. It's, it's, it's this kind of behavior that's actually driving people out of healthcare work environments. You know, they, they, they'd rather go work somewhere else. Um, so this workforce is exhausted. It's a, like the public is, like everyone is 20 months in there. You know, but they also haven't had vacations or any time off in that whole period. And so, you know, they're, they're also physically vulnerable. They're also emotionally, uh, you know, at, at a low point and, and, and they, they can't afford to get sick. So we would say that we're not going to solve the labor shortage by, by, uh, exposing healthcare workers who are in short supply in hospitals to the potential of getting sick. That's not going to help us. What we're going to have to do is deal with systemic issues, and we're going to have to, you know, um, step up calling for help from elsewhere, like, for example, the military, if that's required to assist. Things aren't uh, immediately a need for these kind of measures at all. Um, so uh, you're suggesting, if necessary, call the military in to help, but don't, don't, don't take this step. Well, I mean, after the tragedy that unfolded in long-term care, you know, we all have to be obsessed by the fact that we have to do everything in our power to protect the people that we're looking after. So there is a risk to the patients, and there is a risk to the staff, but there is a risk to the patients to do this, and it's not a risk that's acceptable, I don't think. So, yes, we still have alternatives we haven't explored, and those would include where we have an urgent staffing crisis. Those would include calling on the federal government to help us with, uh, you know, with uh, medics and nurses and doctors from from the uh, from the armed forces, we could certainly do that. We could draw on others. We could call up. We could call up people who have retired. We have lots of options in terms of trying to find people who can who can work. Um, current regulations allow people, you know, who have retired to to be recertified under a special emergency provision. So, like, we haven't explored any of that, and yet we're moving immediately in the face of what could be an increased demand on hospital services to uh, engage in a practice which we believe to be ultimately putting patients at risk. Uh, I was under the impression they have tried to get retired uh, professionals back. 
Well, I mean, yes, at one point they did, um, but um, that has not been renewed. That call has not been renewed. And uh, so where are you at with this? Have you been talking to them? And and, uh, what's your bottom line on this? Well, I mean, we're going to challenge these policies where they exist, and we're going to challenge the province on it. And and we're we're certainly hoping that they're going to reconsider. Um, you know, I mean, you know, we're not in a position to make ultimatums or threats, but I do think we're in a position to plead with the government on behalf of the people that we look after that that they deserve their best shot to get better when they're in the hospital, and that that means um, that the staff looking after them need to be, uh, you know. To the extent that we can, um, you know, well, and 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 not not uh, you know uh, potentially carriers of COVID to them. Okay, and uh, would you be advising staff to uh, defy those orders if they come into effect? Oh, we haven't had any discussions about that, Libby, and we're acutely aware of the fact that we're in you know a public health emergency, and so. No, nobody's making threats or ultimatums like that. But I would say that it's this kind of behavior by the authorities that is driving people out of nursing and other professions. It's exactly this behavior where, where irrespective of the risk to the patients and to themselves and their coworkers, the authorities will impose on them a regime which they believe to be profoundly unsafe. They don't have any steps that they can take really in this public health emergency to deal with it, but many of them are leaving. And and that doesn't help us either. Okay, thank you so much, Michael Hurley, you, uh, and we'll be uh, we'll be uh, following this very closely. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Take care. Okay, uh, we're turning to something completely different now. Some Ontario municipalities are supporting the legal challenge against Quebec's Bill Twenty One, which bars public servants in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols like hijabs or turbans. The law has been in effect since 2019, and most Quebecers support it. But the controversy flared up again in the last couple of weeks after a teacher was barred from her classroom because she wears a hijab. The campaign to galvanize mayors and councils across the country is spearheaded by Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, and Brampton City Council pledged as much as $100,000 to challenge the bill in court. Canadian taxpayers, we'll be talking, by the way, to Mayor Brown very shortly, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation opposes this use of public funds. So let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Franco. Hey, thanks for having me on today. You're welcome. So why is this a bad use of our money? Well, first, I just want to start out with this is a very important issue, Um, but taxpayers should not be paying for this. I I think taxpayers expect that their municipal tax dollars go towards important projects within their communities, right? Like high-quality policing, like fixing the roads, like paving over the potholes, but not having their municipal tax dollars go towards social justice issues in other provinces. Now, if this is an issue that mayors and councillors in Ontario or some of these other provinces like Alberta uh, feel passionate about, then we would encourage them to use their own salaries or to fundraise within their communities uh, to make generous contributions, but not to use city tax dollars that are meant to go towards important projects 
within the communities. Um, what about the argument that, uh, hey, on the other side of things, public funds are being used. Public funds uh, are used for all kinds of legal issues all the time. And uh, they're saying it's a move to counter Quebec's weight. Well, when we're, t- when we're talking about municipalities, uh, sure, tax dollars are used on legal issues, but the legal issues should be impacting within the community, right? Legal issues directly within the community. Um, and again, if, if this is something that a mayor such as the mayor of Brampton really feels strong about, um, fantastic. We would encourage him to, to not just give up, but to, but to use his own dollars for this, right? There's an easy and wrong way to do this, and that is just dipping into the community taxpayers' funds. And then there's a harder but the right way to do that. And the harder but right way to do this would to be used some of their salaries. Now, I looked at the Brampton City website today, and I saw that uh, the mayor is making over $140,000 in an annual salary. So well, certainly, he could use some of his own salary to fund, uh, to fund this. Well, we, we don't know that he is not making a personal contribution. Um, other mayors have followed. Uh, Toronto is making a contribution of about the same size, which, of course, is uh, less. It's like more of a drop in the bucket in the, in the Toronto city budget. And uh, we have other cities following suit. So what do you say to that? Obviously, this is something that resonates. Well, we would say the same thing to those mayors. But you mentioned other cities. Let me point out another city, uh, the city of Calgary. You have incoming mayor, Miss Jody Gondek. She clearly feels very passionate about this issue. Now, originally, she wanted to uh, do a similar thing as the city of Brampton, uh, contribute $100,000 of city taxpayers' money. Um, but a motion that was just passed by the city of Calgary today backed away from using city funds. That's the right thing to do. The, the motion um, said that they could help nonprofits raise the funds, right? That is what the city of Calgary is doing, and that is the right approach to this for councillors, for mayors who, who feel that this is a very important issue and want to take a stand. Um, they're free to do that, but they should be using their own salaries. And as leaders in municipalities, they should be fundraising, uh, doing bake sales, things of that nature, uh, to, to raise this money privately, voluntarily, and to help the organizations that are doing these legal challenges. Okay, Franco Terrazano, thank you so much for your perspective. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. Okay, we're taking another break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown about this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, as I said earlier, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown is leading the campaign to mobilize mayors and city councils in the fight against Bill 21. Other municipalities lining up behind him are Toronto, Barrie, London, and Calgary, even though Calgary is not putting money behind it. The prime minister and the opposition leader say this whole issue is a matter for Quebecers. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has only recently spoken out against it, even though he would be directly targeted by it. So what do you think? Uh, should the cities get involved in fighting this 
bill, which so many believe is discriminatory. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Hello. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Great to be back on your show. Thank you. Uh, Before we get to this, a personal question. I read a tweet about your 107-year-old grandmother. How is she? She's doing well. Yeah, she's still in her long-term care home. Uh, They were uh, ravaged by COVID early on in the pandemic, uh, where she lost uh, some good friends. But uh, she's still healthy and safe, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing her later in the week. Oh, wow. I'm uh, knocking. I'm not sure what it is I'm knocking on here, but uh, knock wood, as they say. Uh, now to the uh, the matter at hand. Why did you decide both to take this up and, and to put public dollars behind it? Well, I really believe that um, that religious freedom is a foundational value in our country. Right? Um, it's protected in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and we have a situation right now in Canada where the government of Canada is not defending their own Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's under attack in in Quebec, there's a court challenge uh, being led by uh, the NCCM, the World Sikh Organization, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, but they're running up against a wall. They've been raising money, ten, twenty dollars a time, um, uh, small donations, but they're they're up against the government of Quebec that has unlimited legal resources, and it's a scary prospect that you know that they're going to run into a financial wall. It's going to cost them $3 million to take this to the Supreme Court. They've raised $1.1, um, so they're significantly short of the ability to resource an effective opposition to this um, discriminatory bill. And they had hoped the federal government would step in, uh, but because they haven't, uh, largely on a political calculation of worrying that it would be unpopular in Quebec, um, they've they need help. And so... Canada's big cities, I think, have risen to the occasion. You mentioned a few. We probably have 30 to 40 cities now that have have stepped up to offer contributions. Um, and I think it's a, um, a beautiful coming together of Canadian cities saying that we want to defend religious freedom. Uh, we were just on the phone with uh, Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He says it's an important issue, but if you feel strongly about it, you should make a personal contribution and not use uh, municipal money. So it, it's the public purse that is defending this discriminatory bill. Taxpayer dollars are being used to bully and defend um, the, the bill and to have a level playing field. Um, this is the only way to do it. Um, this is about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Are we going to uh, fight to stand up for our charter, or are we going to allow it to be walked over? You know, I believe it's a, an important document. And, you know, you look at religious freedom. Canada actually appointed an ambassador to re- for religious freedom. We have an ambassador. We had an ambassador going around the world lecturing on the importance of religious freedom. Frankly, we're hypocrites if we say to the world, protect religious freedom, and then we don't do so in our own country. The, the notion that a young man who wears a turban couldn't be a police officer, um, a teacher, or a judge in in Quebec is unconscionable. The fact that a, a young woman who wore, wore a hijab was fired as a teacher because of her faith, um, that's not um, the Canada that, that, that we know. You know, it, it, in my belief, regardless of who you love, where you're born, the color of your skin, what God you worship, everyone should have equal opportunity in this country. 
Uh, yeah, again, for a lot of people, the, the issue is just the money. You're saying that municipal money should go to municipal things, and uh, this is outside your purview. And uh, I don't want to get into the weeds on the Constitution, but, you know, our, we also have this notwithstanding clause. Uh, yeah, and, and the reality is taxpayers are being used to defend this, this discriminatory law. And the only way we're going to have a real shot at winning this case at the Supreme Court is if it's a level playing field. It, right now, it is taxpayer resources um, overwhelming um, the uh, minority groups that are challenging this bill. And what Canada's big cities have done is, is we've leveled the playing field to make sure we can have a fair fight at the Supreme Court. And one of the reasons that our city solicitor um, interpreting the Municipal Act determined that we can contribute to this, and, and the reason other cities have contributed to it, is under the Municipal Act, it says there has to be a municipal interest. And because this is going to be a potential Supreme Court precedent, that hangs over not just Quebec, but all of Canada. If there is a Supreme Court precedent that says you can legally discriminate based on someone's faith, um, that would create a legal pathway for a future premier or mayor in, in another part of the country to do so as well. We cannot have that precedent in our country. We cannot have a precedent that allows legal discrimination. Um, and, you know, heaven forbid someone else was elected on a populist wave um, where they wanted to do that. And I don't think it's impossible. You know, look, look what happened in the United States with Trump and, and, and the travel ban that almost happened. You never know what happens in populist waves. And there needs to be a foundational basis which says in this country, no matter where you live, in Canada, we don't allow second-class citizenship. A Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. A couple of things. Uh, first of all, what do you make of the response of our federal leaders? Uh, you know, they, they might say uh, it's well and good for municipal leaders to get behind this. They won't have a political price to pay. But, uh, you know, uh, Trudeau, O'Toole, uh, even Jagmeet Singh. What do you make of, uh, uh, you know, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are, are they just appeasing Quebec or how's, what's your view? I found the response in Ottawa to be cowardly and it's disappointing from all political parties. This is not a partisan criticism. It, it is a criticism at Canada's political parties for um, failing to live up to their own words. You have the prime minister saying this bill is, is discriminatory. It's wrong. Um, You've got the leader of the opposition and the third party saying this bill is, is completely wrong, but they're not willing to do anything about it. Why? Why were they silent in the last two federal elections? And, and all the pundits will say it's because they don't want to lose seats in Quebec. But since when do we do polls on what is right and wrong? Since when is there a political calculation on how many seats you will lose or win when it comes to an issue of discrimination and racism. It is, it is right or wrong. It, it's, it's, it's that stark, and it's disappointing that in Ottawa they are making a political calculation than, than following their conscience. What about the arguments and, and people? People are calling in. I, I, I hope to get to some of those calls, and uh, if not, we'll talk about it tomorrow. But um, in Quebec... Some of the uh, commentary on it is uh, taking this up, it could be counterproductive, it'll make uh, Quebecers think it's them against the rest of Canada, uh, that type of argument. What do, you, what do you say to that? So I put out a video in uh, French in Quebec where I said very clearly that I love Quebec, I love the people, the culture, the province, I've spent 
three years studying French in Trois-Rivières. I've got family in Montreal and the eastern townships. I grew up visiting um, uh, Quebec. I, I love the province. What I don't support is a law that is discriminatory. Um, and I've spoken to mayors across Quebec. I've been making my phone calls saying we all need to step up to defend our charter. And the general response I get is the premier is too popular. We don't want to face retaliation. Uh, the bill's already passed. We have to learn to live with it. But I can't tell uh, I can't tell minority groups in my community that we have to learn to live with discrimination. It's that simple. I mean, uh, again, you know, um, I would have to say, and uh, no disrespect intended, Francois Legault is is certainly the most effective politician in the country, like it or hate it. So are people just afraid of him? He is uh, at over 60% in the polls, that one mayor told me, in Quebec. And so, yeah, he is very popular. And and uh, and I think there's there's mayors who know that this bill is, is, is wrong, who know it's discriminatory, but in Quebec um, are scared to... Um, speak up because of of the premiers uh, of Quebec's popularity. Um, but what I've said to the mayors that I've spoken to on the phone is that every government has a shelf life. And one day, it is my firm belief, you're going to see a Prime Minister of Canada stand up in the House of Commons and apologize for this period. You're going to get a Premier stand up in the National Assembly in Quebec and apologize for this and apologize to everyone that lost uh, their employment. There's no difference you know, in terms of the discriminatory nature of this and and past apologies, discrimination is wrong. Racism is expensive. Discrimination is expensive. And, and I firmly believe one day there'll be an apology uh, for this period and for everyone that lost a job. But also, um, you have to admit, I mean, this bill is very, it's very popular among Quebecers. It's not just Legault. Uh, the internment of Japanese Canadians was popular at one point as well. It doesn't mean that it was right. And so if you look at our apologies over time, where government has apologized for discrimination, um, sometimes it takes uh, time to realize that something is fundamentally wrong. And no one can tell me that telling someone because they wear a turban, they have to choose between their faith and their employment. No one can tell me that uh, if you're a Muslim woman, you have to choose between your employment and your faith. It is, it is blatantly wrong, and I know one day there'll be a recognition for that, not just in the House of Commons, but in Quebec as well. Okay, uh, the lines are really filling up, so I'm going to take a couple of calls. And people, we can continue this conversation tomorrow. Uh, Pat in Toronto. Pat, I need your comment very quickly, please. Yeah, uh, this is not something that the municipality should be doing. If he wants, If Patrick wants to do anything, he should allow people to voluntarily send money in. As a former municipal person myself, it is so easy to spend other people's money. And this is not something the municipality is responsible for. Okay. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, Pat, let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Got two quick points. First of all, I do agree. I mean, it wasn't the municipality of Montreal that did this. It's the province of Quebec, so I think it should be more on a provincial level, and they should be trying to stir the provincial government to speak up. And the other point I wanted to make out very simply is that I don't think that freedom of religion has any meaning unless it includes freedom from religion. And from one perspective, uh, what they're doing in Quebec is trying to not try to integrate religious symbols in with government positions. Yeah, except uh, I, 
I was I, I I think they changed their minds. At one point, uh, there were some Quebecers saying that the great big cross in the National Assembly was not a religious symbol. It was a cultural symbol. So, you know, it depends how you look at all of it, Daryl. Thanks for your call. Enough, but I mean, the ideal perfect world would be where none of this would matter. Well, yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to take one more before uh, we get to Mayor Brown to uh, wrap things up on this. Uh, John in Beaverton. Hello, John. Hello, how are you doing? Fine, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think this has anything to do with mayors. It's up to the federal government to straighten this up. We're just making trouble with the province of Quebec fashion. Yeah, but the federal government isn't doing it. Well, maybe maybe they're doing the right thing then. Okay. Can you follow me? Uh, sort of. Yeah, I do. Thanks, because John. We don't want to make trouble with Quebec. They'll be leaving then. Okay. Well, there you go, Patrick. Um, in a nutshell, what do you say to these people? And and our last caller said, you know, if we aggravate the Quebecers, they'll they'll separate or threaten to separate. I think over time, there's going to be a majority in Quebec that recognize that this was a mistake. Every government has a shelf life, and I believe the popularity of a discriminatory uh, law will only be so long. Um, And in terms of it being a municipal um, uh, response to to step up, uh, I think cities across Canada are only doing so um, because uh, of the lack of leadership in in Ottawa. And I'd note it is overwhelmingly popular in, in my community to stand up for the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's only 14 cents per resident to help with this, this, this lawsuit. Um, and it was a unanimous vote of our city council. Um, and the reason it was such a consensus is in a diverse community like Brampton, um, I have many residents who have fled countries that didn't have religious freedom. And part of the allure of Canada was that religious freedom would always be protected. And so the notion that it could be diminished and there could be a precedent set in Canada that takes away from it um, is something that my residents don't want to stand for. So um, what do you do from here? Do you have a fundraising goal? And um, uh, you, the, the other question that I have is, is uh, you know, the Supreme Court, does it, I mean, does it really depend on money? I mean, won't the justices decide in their wisdom? You know, I practice law, um, and resources matter in, um, in a big legal fight. Uh, they certainly do. Right now, it's going to cost about $3 million. Uh, the groups that have raised funds have raised about $1.1, so they're about $1.9 million short. Uh, but based on all the municipalities that have stepped up across the country, I think we're going to be able to uh, fill that $1.9 million short- shortfall and be able to have um, uh, adequately resource fight at the Supreme Court. Okay, then uh, I can see that we're going to have to take this topic up again. And uh, people, we can even bring it up again tomorrow on Free for All Friday. Anything you want to leave us with, Mayor Brown? Just happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and stay safe, everyone. Okay, thank you so much, Mayor Patrick Brown. Merry Christmas to you. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have for today. As I said, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. We'll talk about this Bill 21 thing. We'll also talk about Christmas. It's Christmas Eve tomorrow. we can talk about uh, some nice things, and we'll talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.